Good morning. Good morning. Glad to have you all here. On your way in, you should have been handed the notes for today, and if you want to get those out, just a second, we'll jump into the teaching. Um, six weeks ago, I came before our church, and uh, this is for folks who, JFC is your home, so if you're visiting this morning, please just bear with me for a second. Um, but six weeks ago, I'd come before our church and just said, hey, uh, I need to present a financial need that the church was going through. We've had a ton of projects this year, and because of that, um, sometimes dollars get stretched, high dollars end up in different projects. And I just said simply, folks, we, what we've got is a shortfall here that we're coming into the end of the year with. And uh, I said there were two things, came up with a plan that we needed to enact. The first one was internal, what we needed to do with the staff, some cuts that I would make, uh, some things to the size of the staff and benefits and things like that. And um, it is, uh, as you can imagine, those things aren't easy to have to do, but we have, uh, we have done that. And then the second part of the plan was I just presented it to the church and just said, hey, we need you guys. What, what we needed was uh, ongoing, undesignated giving that allowed us to catch up and to operate our budget like we needed to be. Here's the report. So six weeks ago, I asked for that. I could not have asked for you to do any more than what you have done for the past six weeks. I wanted to take a moment and thank you. Uh, there was such a response over the past six weeks that um, half, we, we were $250,000 uh, behind where we needed to be. 125000 has come in in six weeks uh, already. Uh, yeah, so thank God for that. It is it's unbelievable. Wanted to just encourage you. It's, so the message, now, okay, so now, now we're done. No, keep, keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> Don't stop. Keep here, here's what we saw. There were a few people who gave um, some, some larger gifts, and, and for that, I, I, gosh, couldn't be more grateful. But when you look at how do you, how do you build and sustain, what you need is a lot of people to do a regular amount, if that makes sense. And that's what we saw happen in this. People who don't normally participate began to participate. Thank you for that. For those of you who are regular and just and every week you're, you're there, thank you for that. Keep doing it. Here's my, my hope. December is, <clears throat> as it is for most churches, the best month that you have. You're in giving a number of different reasons. But if everything goes like it's going, and we have the normal December that we have, We'll close that gap so that on the financial report for 2014, it won't even show that there was even a, a deficit there from the summertime. That's what my hope is, and that's what I'm trying to do. So I wanted to take a moment and just tell you thank you. Well done. Just keep doing what you're doing. God is using that. It's going exceptionally well. And it, is it okay if I just say I appreciate what you've done? Give yourselves a hand because it is, it is wonderful. I really, truly am grateful for it. Wow. Cold welcome right there. Okay. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's a below zero. Uh, well done. Okay, let's, let's jump in. Last week, Pastor DJ began the first message in our series, uh, our Christmas series called Great Joy. We're using Luke chapter 2, 10 and 11 as uh, the text for what we're going to teach uh, for the next couple of weeks for our Christmas series. And you'll remember that DJ taught last week, the message uh, title was Fear Not or No Fear. Now, in uh, the book of Luke, we're using Luke's uh, version of the Christmas story. Luke was a doctor. Uh, doctors tend to be uh, pretty studious people. They take a lot of good notes. So if you ever read Luke's gospel compared to Matthew or Mark, you'll notice that Luke goes into a lot more detail. Some of that's just Luke's personality. He's a very detail-oriented person, and it just so happens Luke is a doctor. So when Luke writes down his account of the gospel scene, he includes all sorts of information that you don't find in the other gospel. So Luke begins uh, in chapter 1 with the visitation of Gabriel to Zacharias. Now, Zacharias was John the Baptist's father. 
And you'll remember that the angel comes uh, to Zacharias and tells him, hey, your son is going to be the forerunner. Zacharias, is, he, he, he doesn't believe. He can't believe this could be happening. And the angel is actually dumbfounded because he, he tells him, if God tells you something, it can take place. And so he strikes him mute for a number of months until after his son is born. But this is how the angel begins. He shows up and he tells him, don't be afraid. Now, don't you think if the angel takes the time to make that the first message, that it's an indication of how God feels? I mean, God could have come and said, be very afraid. <laughs> and then he would have been justified in anything he did after that. But the very message, the beginning message that we have from God in the New Testament, the very first words spoken on behalf of God in the New Testament are what? Fear not. That's significant, folks. All right, then the next time, just a little while later, the angel Gabriel shows up. Now, remember, Gabriel's job, he stands in the presence of God dispatching messages on behalf of God. That's what the word angel means, messenger. And, and, and Gabriel, every time he shows up in humankind, people are, are incredulous, like, how can this be when he gives them the message? And then Gabriel becomes incredulous with them, like, any word that God speaks has the power to make that thing a reality. How can you doubt? Well, his perspective, he stands in the presence of God. We stand in the presence of cold snow. So there's sometimes a world apart, and it takes a lot of faith on our part to believe certain times. So the angel shows up to Mary, tells Mary, Blessed are you amongst women. You are highly favored to God. The Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you. The power of God will come upon you, and you're going to conceive the Christ. Well, she says, be it done unto me as your word says. So the second time Gabriel comes, he has that message for Mary, but begins how, guess how he begins his message with fear not. And then the third time Gabriel shows up in the first two chapters are at the birth of Christ. The Bible says shepherds were gathered and the angel of the Lord, Gabriel, showed up and the very first words he speaks are fear not. So the three times that God speaks to man in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, the very first time that God speaks, it's with this message, no fear, fear not. Now think about it. He could have come with just the opposite, be very afraid. And then whatever happened, we're justified in going after that. But when God's message is fear not, what a wonderful place to start teaching from. So DJ last week teaches a message on why we shouldn't fear and what God's heart is for us. And I thought DJ did a fantastic job. Listening to him, it just seems like every time he teaches, he gets better and better and better and better. And I wanted to take a moment and just thank DJ for his ministry. I thought, I thought he did awesome. Now, today we're going to move into the second part of, of this verse. And so, uh, find Luke chapter 2, 10 and 11. I'm going to count to three. And what I'd like you to do is read out loud with me these two verses. Uh, let's do this together. So, one, two, three. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. All right, so in the first part, do not be afraid, and DJ covered that. And the second part of that verse right there says, I bring you good news of great joy. So my title today is Good News, and that's what I wanted to talk to you about. I thought... Before I just jump in trying to teach why it's good news, I thought I would do a quick comparison. So this last week, I, I just picked, it wasn't, I wasn't looking for a particular day. I just randomly picked, it happened to be Tuesday last week, and I sat down and I watched the evening news. I want to ask you the question, when's the last time the 30-minute news program you watched was full of good news? 
Can you, why, why do you laugh at me? Why doesn't anybody raise their hand? So, somebody said one time, well, bad news sells. Really? Well, the Bible is the greatest selling all-time book in history full of good news. How about that fact? So I, I get that, look, bad news appeals to something salacious deep inside of us, but how about this? Good news appeals to a higher level inside of us. And so the gospel is, is the good news. But I thought, okay, let me just do a quick I'll use the negative to teach real, real fast the positive. Expose the bad, then show you the good. So I'm watching last Tuesday, and this is how the news began. It's NBC Evening News, Brian Williams. Uh, Brian begins uh, at the White House. And he begins with the news that's going on in Washington, D.C. right now. And he said, these were his words, we're at an all-time high in our country for gridlock. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat or somewhere in between. Nothing is getting done in this city right now. That good news? So then we move from Washington, D.C. We begin to go around the world in about a five-minute time period. Very interesting. The next stop was Afghanistan, where they're reporting from our troops in Afghanistan. And this was the report on Tuesday night. We have now passed the anniversary of the longest war in the history of our country with no end in sight. Good news? So we move from Afghanistan quickly. This is the power of modern news. We can move around the world to hear bad news at lightning speed. So we move from Afghanistan and we go uh, right into Syria. And here's what they said in Syria. The civil war in Syria is spilling over its borders into Lebanon. In fact, there was a suicide bomber who took out a high level uh, Hamas leader this last week. And now the Middle East, if it's possible, is becoming more unstable than ever before in our time. And we move from there, uh, right outside of, of Syria, into Egypt, where we have the military government who has taken over. And this is a report on Tuesday. The military government is doing all they can to crack down on freedom of speech and right to assembly that people in Egypt thought they were getting with the change in their government. And then from Egypt, we move simply to Iran, the bastion of good news in our world today. Oh, come on. You're here, laugh. You may, look, you're the tough ones. You did it. You're here. So we moved to Iran, and this is the report from Iran. With the lifting of sanctions, in the hope of being able to come up with an accord to allow the United Nations to be able to certify that Iran is not going to build a bomb, has caused a great instability with a lot of our allies. But then the reporter says this, the problem with all of this is, of course, that if they don't mean what they say, they'll have a bomb by the time we figured out they were fooling us. And then from Iran, we go to Israel, where Netanyahu comes on the television, and they have him taped in a speech, and this is what Netanyahu says, we are greatly disappointed in our ally, the United States who for years has stood behind the only democracy in the Middle East, and now we feel betrayed by that, so we are going to have to take security into our own hands because Israeli security will have to be our own issue. Boy, that's a good news popping all over the place. From Israel, we move to the Philippines, where they report on a typhoon named Haiyan that wiped out. And in fact, here was the report. They're having to bury people so fast because of the climate, you can imagine, that they're unable to identify. And so what they're saying is that so many people are being buried, 
who their relatives will never know what happened to them, back to the U.S., where a report on how well things went for Black Friday financially in the United States did not go good. And so there's great disappointment among our retailers. So in a five-minute time period, I went around the world and couldn't find one piece of good news. Somewhere in the middle of it, they throw in some story about a dog or a cat. Yes or no? So sort of like, here, you know, here's good news. This cat was caught in a tree, and 15 firemen came and got him down and named him Sparky. So I'm like, you know, so you'll get that on the way home. The, the, so you've got to talk about, about good news. And I think in a way, we've become so accustomed to news not being good that there, there's almost like we're, we're, we're desensitized to good news anymore. So we don't hear much of it, and what we do call good news isn't really good news. So it's sort of like the word special. If everything's special, nothing's special. And if all the news we get is bad then, and we call it good, it just gets watered down, doesn't it? So I didn't, I didn't come to talk about things happening around our world or in government, I came to talk about what God is doing and the good news that he brings us. And interestingly enough, he begins his message to people in the New Testament with these words, fear not, and then the very next thing that he says, I bring you good news of great joy. Good news. What is it about good news that's so important to us? Years ago, I was uh, shopping at Barnes & Noble and I came across that magazine section. I love that section over there. You can read a thousand magazines and never pay for anything. I love that. <laughs> you ever do that? Go in there and put it back. I, Time Magazine had a front page cover. And it, they had run a, a poll. It wasn't a, a, a poll with the church. It wasn't a poll for belief. It was just a poll in the United States. And it asked the question, what are the top three things of good news that you want to hear? So they put this poll together and they came up with three things. The first one is, here's what people want to hear, good news. I love you. I forgive you. Supper's ready. <laughs> now, I did have a caveat on the supper's ready. It depends on who's cooking <laughs> as to whether or not that's good news. You agree with that right there? But if it's my wife, it's very good news, let me, let me tell you. So the top three things that people want to hear, not a Christian poll, just, just humanity. I love you. I forgive you. Supper's ready. So I got thinking about that, and I thought, you know, in reality, why in the world? And this isn't Christian. I, I understand if you, if you said to a bunch of Christians, top three things that are important to you, I love you, I forgive you, come now, everything's ready. I, I, I get the supper thing. Why a bunch of people who don't know God? Why would they say, there's a scripture in Ecclesiastes. Solomon wrote it. I put it for reference in your notes. It's from Ecclesiastes 3, it's verse 11. Second part of the verse, Solomon says this, God put eternity in the hearts of all mankind. So whether you're a believer or not, he puts something in you that when it's all said and done, we long for, I love you, I forgive you, supper's ready. There's something to those th three things that speak deep inside of us. Now let me say this to you. The Bible is called the first four books, the gospel. In fact, many, you probably, if you look at the first part of your Bible, it'll say the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, the gospel of John. Does anybody remember what the word gospel means in a literal translation? The good news. So, you know, everything that we're supposed to be bringing 
as believers, it's supposed to be, even if it's difficult news, we're supposed to temper it with, but God is in control, and here's how it ends. I read the end of the book, we win. It's good news. So I got thinking, when the world says the top three things we want to hear are I love you, I forgive you, and supper's ready, can I just tell you what they clearly identified is, in a nutshell, what the gospel is. Here's the gospel. I love you, I forgive you, supper's ready. There's a place at my table for you. You can come home. I've been waiting for you. I love you. I know you. You belong to my family. Think about it. I love you. I forgive you. Supper's ready. That's the gospel. And whether people know it or not, that's the longing of their heart, isn't it? I love you. I forgive you. Supper's ready. So let me just teach on those three real quick. The first one is the idea that this is all good news. The first one is I love you. And years ago, I was trying to teach on on love, uh, trying to teach the idea of how, how you expose people to what God's love, because love has become a 50-cent word in our society. So, I mean, we love everything, man. So I, we, Chris and I, we, we, we took our, the four oldest grandchildren out Friday night, right? And we made a night of it. We go to Red Robin, and then we go see the new Disney movie, Frozen, right? I'll talk about that here in just a second. So we had a great time. But here's what my, my granddaughters told me. We love Red Robin. And then when we got done with the movie, we love Frozen. And then when we're dropping them off to go home, guess what they said? We love you, Papa. Now, hopefully they don't love me like they love Red Robin and Frozen. Hopefully there's a little difference. But we use the word, we just throw it around, don't we? If everything is love, then nothing is love. Love is a very special word. It, it, it loses something. So how do you teach? You, you want to stand up and teach on love. How do you make it so special when you talk about God's love? So years ago I was teaching on love, and I thought I would try to teach the idea of, of how God loves us. And there was a sentence that I wrote that has always stayed with me, and I put it back in your notes. He loves you based on who he is, not on who you are. Yeah, thank God. If you really get it, you get it. Now, if you're sitting here today and you're like, well, what do you mean he, do he doesn't love me for who I am? No, that's not what I'm saying. So let me say it again. God loves you based on his character, not on your character. So in other words, no matter what happens, no matter what you do, how you feel, whether you're doing good, whether you're doing bad, whether you're having your best day or whether you're having your worst day, whether you're fighting or whether you're in peace, whether everything around you is perfect or whether everything around you is just hellacious, God loves you, and he never changes. Here, here, listen, if you really get it, this is really good news. God knows everything about you, and he loves you. Anyway, it's a good word to add to it. So the Bible, when it tries to describe this love, teaches, it, it's a spiritual point. God's love is a spiritual understanding. See, we love, we're physical creatures. There's a spirit inside of us, but we understand things physically, don't we? we? We touch things, and we smell things, and we taste things, and hear things, and we see things. So in order to take the spiritual principle and then put it in a context where humans can touch it, smell it, see it, he has to use things that we understand. So he takes love, and this is what he says. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, the closest uh, possible identification of God's love, a way that he gets us to understand God's love. He says, husbands, love your wives like Jesus loves you. Wives, submit, give yourself, give honor to your husband like you give to the Lord. So he has to use the marriage relationship, not just the way that people love each other, but the special, unique love that a husband and wife have for each other when it's going the way it should go. And then he makes the comparison. Okay, here's how you love your wife, like Christ loves you. So I've made this statement. If you don't get this love, you can't ever give that love. And if you don't get this love with him, you can't show that to somebody else. It's impossible. 
So, so people that don't know God, they say they love. Well, Pastor, are you saying they don't really? I'm not saying they don't really love, but they know love at a depth that's less than this love. And God's trying to get us to recognize when he says, I love you, it's this love. What does that look like? So I started searching for examples. How, how can I show people the, the glimpse of when a, when a man loves a woman, when he loves his wife the way he's supposed to, when a wife loves her husband the way she, little glimpses of what it looks like when God loves us. And I, I found this this week. I thought it was really cool. It has to do with an older man who had been married for a very long period of time. It begins this way. It was a busy morning, 8.30 a.m. An elderly gentleman in his 80s arrived to have stitches removed from his thumb. He said he was in a hurry as he had an appointment that he had to get to. By 9 o'clock, I took his vital signs and had him take a seat, knowing it would be well over an hour before someone would be able to see him. I saw him looking at his watch impatiently and decided since I was not busy with another patient that I would evaluate his wound. Upon examining it, I saw it was well healed, so I talked to one of the doctors and got the needed supplies to remove the sutures and redress his wound. While taking care of his wound, I asked him if he had another doctor's appointment that he had to get to that morning because he was in such a hurry. The gentleman told me no, that he needed to go to the nursing home to eat breakfast with his wife. I inquired as to her health. He told me that she has been sick for five years with Alzheimer's. As we talked a little bit later, I asked if she would be upset if he was a bit late. He replied that she no longer knew who he was and it wouldn't matter to her if he was late or not. In fact, he said she hadn't recognized him in the last five years that he's been meeting every morning for breakfast. I was very surprised at that and asked him, you still go every morning even though she doesn't know who you are? He smiled and he patted my hand and said, she doesn't know me, but I know who she is. There's something special about little glimpses like that when we begin to get what true love can do in a person's life. Now, stop. God says, you who are human know how to love, but if you compare it to the way that I love, you actually look evil in comparison to me. And we catch little glimpses here and there of a way that a man or a woman can love each other that's so special and so wonderful, but then in comparison to how God loves us 24-7, 365, all the way through eternity. It's the most wonderful news there can be. There's no better news than that. So we take the grandkids to see Frozen. And I won't give it away. Some of you are going to go see it. Let me just give a quick shout out to Disney. Last several years, Disney family stuff has missed it by a large mark. What they call family, you have to be very careful exposing your family to. In this movie, they got it right. So we'll give away the premise, but I'll just say this very quickly. Uh, part of what happens in it is that the question of true love has to take place. So they're asked, what is true love? One of the main characters named Swin gives a definition. True love is when you prefer another person's needs in front of yours. As I was waiting for some kind of Disney unobtainable BS to happen. And I get this, true love, real love, is when you prefer another needs. In fact, he, then he goes on to say this, the greatest sacrifice that real love can make is that it lays down its life for another person. Wow. Unbelievable. So, 
those who are raising little children probably know this to be true. Disney has found a way to make you stay for the entire credits. They put a small cartoon at the very end of the credits that your kids will find out about somehow. And you will be like, as soon as the movie's over, you're getting coats on, let's get out of here before the crowd gets here, and your kids are like, we can't leave! No! One of them begins to cry, please don't make me leave the theater right now. All right, sit down, we're going to stay. Five minutes of credits go by. Very last thing in the credit says this. <laughs> Swim's opinions are not necessarily those of Disney. I'm told a cartoon they have to say that about. Go see it. You'll see it for yourself. And then the little cartoon happens. But we're driving the grandchildren home, and I just asked them, what you guys think about they loved it? What you think about what they said about love? What did they say about love? They said that real love, true love, is when you prefer another person in front of your own needs. That real love, the greatest act would be to lay down your life for another person. You know that Jesus does that for us? My grandchildren, good job, by the way, because the older ones knew exactly that's what Jesus had done for us. That's good news. He loves us so much that the ultimate act, even the world knows that the ultimate act of real love is that you lay down your life for another person. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? Isn't that what God did with his son? That he saw our need, and even though it wasn't his fault, he took the responsibility for it, putting our needs in front of his own son's and asked his son to lay down his life for us. How powerful is that? So the second part of that was, I love you, I forgive you. So let me talk about forgiveness for just a second. My favorite verse in the Bible, whenever I give an opportunity, when I'm teaching at the end of it, if I ever give an opportunity for someone to come to Christ, like I will today. When we get done here, let me just, let me remove something from you. One of the things that I'm always teaching for, I have three goals in my mind. Here's the win for me. Did I teach good news? That's always, this is it for me. Did I teach good news? Was the life of God offered for people? And did people have a chance to experience God in our service? That's the win for me. If we did those three things, then nothing else matters to me. Those are the wins. When I get done today, let me remove all the mysterious part out of this. I'm going to have you bow your heads. And anybody that's here this morning that doesn't know Christ, I'm not going to ask you to join our church or be good or get religion. I'm going to ask you if you want to know Jesus. I'm going to ask you if you need mercy and you need grace in your life. I'm going to ask you if you want to be forgiven by God. I'm going to ask you if you need God's love. And no matter where you are in life, whether you're visiting today or you've been here for a hundred times or you'll never be here again, it does not matter. I'm going to offer you the opportunity to come to God's table. It has nothing to do with what church you claim is your own or where you're at in life, period. It has to do with whether or not you get that God loves you, he forgives you, and offers you a place at his table. And if you want that, this morning you can have it. I'll give you a chance. But let me talk to you about forgiveness real quickly. My favorite verse, and I'll quote this when we get to the end, is right here in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. So Paul writes to this church, and he spells out what Jesus has done for us in these two verses so clearly. Let me read this to you. You were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. Look at me. You don't just need help if you don't have Christ. You're dead. God's not offering you a fix. He's not trying to help you be better. He's not coming in order to put a patch or to whitewash. Here's the deal. You're dead spiritually. He wants to make you alive spiritually. 
Jesus took your death so you can have his life if you want it. Now, this becomes really important. I want you to listen. So you were dead in your sins and in, your tre- in the circumcision of your sinful nature. God made you alive with Christ. Look at these words. He forgave us all. How many is all? Try that one more time. How many is all? You'd have to go to seminary to mess that word up. All is all. Let me just give you a second to think about it. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away. How? Nailing it to the cross. All right, let me, let me, just, let me see how theologically astute you are right now. Does Jesus have to ever come back again to die for anyone's sins? So he died for every sin you committed yesterday, every sin you'll commit today, and every sin you'll commit in the future. You agree with that statement? Has he done it for everybody on the planet? So then everybody, when they die, goes to heaven. What? Wait wait a minute. Jesus died for every person's sin, yes or no? Do you agree with that statement? So then everybody, when they die, goes to heaven. I got some of you, like, you're backing off. You're like, I'm not going to let him trap me. (laughs) And some of you right now are trying to figure out, it's your first time here, and you're trying to figure out, mm mm-hmm, I got it, uh-huh. We'll never be back. Listen to this. Okay, listen to this. Here's the reason why not everyone goes to heaven. It's not your sins that are being counted against you. It's whether or not you're in reconciliation with God that matters. Forgiveness is a one-party issue. You can hurt me, and whether you know you did it or not, I can choose to forgive you, correct? But unless you say to me, what I did was wrong, we're not reconciled in relationship. Jesus, by the act of the cross, has dealt with everyone's sin. It's all been removed out of the way so that when you stand before God, he will not read a list. Here's, here, in America, here's what we think heaven is like. We show up at the pearly gates. St. Peter is there with a the clipboard. James, he goes through a long list of your sins. I mean, it, dude, it goes all the way to the other side of the stage. And then Carrie shows up, and he's just like, come on in. <laughs> and that is so false. And that, is the, that becomes the joke of St. Peter showing up at the pearly gates, nothing like that. We'll stand before God. And if you have called upon the name of Christ, there are no sins that will ever be read against you. What will be looked at is whether or not Jesus knew you. Jesus himself taught these words. On the day when people stand before the Father, there will be people who say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons? And did we not prophesy? And did we not do miracles in your name? And Jesus will look at them and say to them, depart from me because I know you not. It's not enough to be aware of the sacrifice of Christ. It's not enough to be okay with the sacrifice of Christ. You're not reconciled with God until you say to him, I want this applied in my life. Let me give you an Old Testament teaching that tells us the same thing. When the Hebrews were escaping Egypt, the final plague was the plague of death of the firstborn. The only escape was to apply the blood of the sacrificial lamb to the doorpost. Do you remember that? Even the Israelis who didn't do it lost their child to death. They call the holiday Passover because if you had the blood of the lamb applied to the doorpost, the angel of the Lord passed over the house. It's the same principle being taught from the Old Testament that Christ fulfills in the New Testament. 
John the Baptist, when he saw him, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And if you apply the blood of Christ to your life by saying, God, I need that, I want that, forgive me of my sins, then you are reconciled with God. Your sins are already forgiven. Your sins will not count against you, but whether or not you know God, that's what you'll stand, live, and die on on that day. Does that make sense? That's good news? Yes. Because if you stand before God, here's what you'll hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. It's all been prepared for you. Come on in. And on that day, it will not, you will not argue, but I was a good person. I did more good than bad. None of those things will matter. Here's what it'll be. Did you know Jesus? Did you know him? Say what you want to, turn your head away, laugh at me, but now you know. Now you know. You'll never claim I didn't know. Now you know. Here's good news. He loves you, and he's forgiven you. Let me give you the third one. Supper's ready. Every, every time believers get together, there's like one thing they always do. They eat. It's like you can't even, it's like when we get together and we don't eat. We don't know what to, uh, how, how are you? You got any food? And then all of a sudden, they go, hey. What is it about breaking bread? That you, here's what it is. There is a, from the Old Testament, breaking bread was not, you didn't just break bread with anybody. You didn't go to a restaurant. You just break bread. You broke bread in your home with people that you were saying, you matter to me and I want you in my life. It was a very intimate thing that took place. So the Passover supper was not to be done as a banquet setting with 50,000 people. It was to be done with your family, your extended family, your friends. Some of the traditions we carry over into things we do today, Thanksgiving and Christmas. How about this, though? The further we are from the actual day something started, the more the tradition takes over and the meaning gets left behind. All right, let me, let me read you Supper's Ready. Matthew 26, 26 to 29. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, offered it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then Jesus says this, I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So that institutes what we call communion. And every weekend that we're together, we serve communion. We do it two ways. You've got the crosses set up in the back, and at the crosses there's grape juice, and bread back there, and it's self-serve. Or if you come to the front, you've got two pastors or two people in leadership standing up in the front, and they serve you bread, and it's wine that you'll dip into. So it's either way that you're comfortable or whatever, where you want to go to. It's, it's, but we do that. Here, here's what I would just say to you. We get into the habit of doing it every week, but unless we remind ourselves, then the sacredness of the act is lost in the expedience of just doing what we do as a church. So it works like this. We come to the end of the service, and most people think, okay, I'm going to make my exit out of here. I'll boomerang from the grape juice to the car. And that's not what's supposed to happen. Go. You're being invited to a table. It's prepared for you. Now, 
pray and tell you who he is. At Easter, which is Passover, because we're not Jewish, much meaning in the Lord's Supper is lost to us. Let me just, I've taught this at Passover, but let me just, a, a quick, when a young Jewish groom wanted to get married in Jesus' day, he didn't have um, Christian mingle. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't sign up for, you know, uh, Israeli date. There was no, it didn't work like that. So most marriages were prearranged. It's just the way that they were. So when, when a young groom had found the one he wanted to marry, you, the groom and the bride had very little to do with it initially. The groom and the bride's parents negotiated. All right, so the groom would wear a little satchel. And inside of his satchel were certain promises that he had written down called a covenant. They were things that would be written so that the bride's parents, he would hand it to the bride's parents and they would read it and it would be the promises that if you pick me, here's what I promise to do for your daughter. For instance, I will take care of her. I will provide for her. I will watch over her. I will make sure that she has a, a, a vast fortune when I'm all said and done. And all, all the different promises that are made. So Jesus, part of the language that he uses, this is the new covenant. My promises. All right, so that when the bride's parents read the terms of the covenant, if they agreed with it, they didn't shake hands, high five, sign a contract with a lawyer. There was a cup of wine sitting on the table. The bride's parents would pick it up and would drink from it. No words are even exchanged. The significance behind accepting the covenant was that I'll drink from the cup. And then they'd hand it to the groom, and he would drink from it, sealing the deal. Now they've bound themselves to the covenant, that we believe what you said, and we'll give to you the very best we have to give to you. Immediately, the groom would go away and do one thing. He'd begin to prepare the bridal chamber for the bride. Do you remember Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to take you with me so that where I am, you can be also. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not tell you. And then he's asked the question, when are you going to come back? And Jesus says these powerful words about that day and that hour. No one knows except the Father. He's not telling and in Jewish tradition, it was the bridegroom's job to build the bridal chamber, but he didn't get to decide when he was done. The, bride's, uh, the groom's father would tell the groom, okay, it's ready, go get your bride. So Jesus says this, take this cup. If you accept the covenant, drink from it right now. I'm going to drink from it. Now here's what I want you to do. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. I am not going to drink of this with anybody else until I'm with you again in my father's house at the place I prepared for you. But here's what I want you to do. Every time you gather together, pour a cup and drink it so that you remember who you committed yourself to. Remind yourself who you belong to. Reaffirm my covenant. Think of the promises. What have I promised you? I will bring you healing. I will give you life. I love you, I forgive you, and there's a place at my table for you. 
and let me cut to 2013. 2,000 years ago, it was so powerful. And as we allow the reality of the sacred to permeate our hearts, it's almost as though we can go there and see him ourselves. But when we take it in haste, or without the significance of what we're reminding ourselves to do, listen to me, whereas religion as anything out there that you can find. What is religion? It's when the meaning behind it is lost and the act of it is still done. That's religion. You lose the power of it when you lose the sacredness of it. Pastor, how do you bring the sacredness back? What, what, what do we need? You need a pointy hat and a robe and a bishop scepter. No. The sacredness of it is done right here in your heart. Remind yourself before you ever get over there who it is that you love and what you gave yourself to. What you believe to be true this morning and what you're holding on to. What you're holding out for. Remind yourself that he waits, I bet, impatiently to drink that with you in his kingdom. I bet he asked the Father, now? 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 But that can't be true. Every groom I ever knew that was into his bride couldn't wait to get to her. And if I ever did a wedding where the groom was like this when the bride walked in, I think I would have walked out the room. I want every groom to be excited about what he's about to get into. Wow, five. Five is right. You see, Pastor, I've been married now for a while. Heal your heart back. Allow the sacredness of what we do to penetrate. See, folks, look at me for a minute. See, my tradition, we did worship all on the front end of the service, and we preached the message, and then there was a benediction and dismissal. That's how it worked. And several years ago, I realized, you know, the win for me, we've already recorded our message, so this won't mess anything up. Listen, the win for me is not you going, oh, that was such a good message. If you think, God, I have done this for almost 30 years. That's not the win for me anymore. Here's the win for me. Did you experience God today? Did you walk out of here and the Holy Spirit touched your heart? Did he change you? Did he fill you with his life? Did, do you know how much he loves you? Can you go home in the love of God today? And if that didn't happen, we lost. In reality, you lost. And if you lose... I lose. Now the win for me today is when this service is over and done that you realize we're not jetting to our cars. We're now going to get a chance to go face to face with God. We're going to take what was taught and if it's true, we're going to apply it in our lives. That he loves me. That he forgives me. And there's a place at the table. Let me conclude with this. Maybe you'll find this to be true. We raised five children. The first ones had it much tougher than the last ones. We were much younger. We were so freaked out about how they were going to turn out. Any parent relates? You know the age of the parent in this scenario. I, I you know, our last two were twins. I, I think the way that we raised Amy and Brent in particular, Katie was in the middle and started to get the parents that, realized not everything is fatal. 
Not everything is win-lose. But with my oldest girl, she was the first that went through everything. And I remember when she went to youth with a mission. And I got on the plane with her, and we went to Kona, and everything was good until I had to get back on the plane to go. And I remember sitting in the seat, and I turned my head towards the shade, inside seat. I just turned this, and I just wept. And I didn't want anybody to come and ask me what's wrong with you. I didn't, I hate emotions in front of people, especially when I have to be asked to justify why you're like that. And I just wept looking at them. And it wasn't until somewhere close to Los Angeles again that I felt like, okay, we're going we're gonna to be okay. But here's what we did. We would set a plate for her at our table. And I knew she wasn't coming home that night. I knew it wasn't, I, I knew it was, it was silly. But it was a reminder to us that one that belonged to us was missing. Now, here's what's funny. When she would come back into town, we would be gone for months at a time. She'd come back into town. She never called me from the airport and said, hey, can I come home? Dad, is it all right if I come eat with you guys? Here's how my kid acted when she came home. Bust through the door because she had a key. <laughs> Drop her stuff off. Go right to the fridge. Isn't that the way it's supposed to be? He loves you. He forgives you. And he has a place at his table for you set. And every day he looks at it wanting to know if this is the day you'll come home. And I'm not talking heaven right now. I'm talking the realization that you want to come to his table to meet with him. God, you think that that story, listen, gives us a glimpse of human love, right? A, a glimpse of the way a father feels about a child. A glimpse. But me being human compared to him, I'm evil in the way that I love. It's amazing. I can't even begin to fathom how much he loves us. Not counting our sins against us. How many people are living their lives today trying to deal with sin in their life and Jesus has already dealt with it? Trying to think, if I could just get rid of this, I can come to God. Oh, oh man, the devil's got you, man. Stop. He nailed it to the cross. Every time the devil says anything about you, I wonder if God just points at the cross. We put them up in our sanctuary. There's little pieces of paper to them by the end of the second service today, and they get covered with little pieces of paper. There's pens of paper there. Why? Because we think it's a great place when people are dealing with things to realize this is how God deals with your faults. He nails them to the cross. So do they matter and are they important so much that he sent his only son for you? You bet they matter, but that's how you deal with them. Don't sit there and think over and over again, what am I going to do about this? Give it to God and sacrifice that thing at the cross. Okay. Everything I do is superfluous at this point. All I can do is just talk, 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 talk. What do you want to do with it? What do you want to do with it? Just get the chance now to say whether or not it's for you or not. Would you pray with me? So, Father, we just gather all together before you right now. God, people coming from so many different places, from so many different realities in their life. Some of them, Father, this time of year reminds them of everything that's wrong. For some people, this time of year reminds them of all the blessings they have. Folks, just put everything aside for just a moment.
you entered in here today with the opportunity for God to speak to you. So I'm just going to ask the question. If you're here, this particular campus or any of our campuses that we minister at, if you're listening via live streaming right now, so maybe the weather kept you in this morning, maybe you're actually hearing the message after it's been taught, you have downloaded it and you'll be walking on a beach somewhere or on a vacation, driving or on an airplane and you're listening right now, none of those things get in the way of God being able to speak to you right now. This is just between you and God right now. So if you, in the vicinity of my voice this morning, if you need God's grace and his mercy, if you need to experience his love, if you have never said to him, Father, be merciful to me because I'm a sinner and I need help, if you've never cried out to God and recognized that he loves you so much, he's forgiven your sin, and all he waits for is to be reconciled with you. Reconciliation, that two-party issue, both parties have to say, we want to be together. God this morning stands facing you, arms wide open, making the great statement, I want to be reconciled to you, and I've removed everything out of the way that would keep us apart. You get to choose this morning, do you want to be reconciled to God? Do you want his love and his mercy and his grace? Now let me be clear. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, but I will not ask you to stand. I will not parade you around. I will not point you out. And I will not do anything to embarrass you right now. This is between you and the Father. I simply am facilitating an opportunity. Why have us raise our hands then? Only because it's an act of faith on your part to say, I choose God. And I believe that an act of faith is a necessary component in coming to God. Those who believe must believe that he is and that he rewards those who seek him. So if you fall to that category right now, any campus, our campus pastors are watching, here I'm watching, only to facilitate, if you just say, Pastor, that's what I need in my life, pray for me. I've not asked that from God, and I want that. I want to be reconciled this morning, and I'd like you to remember me when you pray. Would you just raise your hand straight up right now? Just pray for me, John. Sure, sure. Yep, yep. Just pray for me. Hold him there for just a second, just so I can see you. I won't promise I will not embarrass you. Just pray for me. Anybody else want in on that prayer? Just let me see you real quick. Okay, put him back down. So there were many of you. I'm going to pray for you. My words will not get anything done for you. And there's no formula prayer. You don't say like, our Father 15 times and then God respects your prayer. You pray from sincerity in your heart. Now you're like, well, I don't know what to pray. All right, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. I want you to pray it, but here's how I want to do it. I want everybody in the room. Let's make this as easy as for these people as we can. Will you all just pray after me? Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for loving me for forgiving me and inviting me to your table. I say yes. I need your love. Thank you for forgiving me. I take my place. Embrace me. In Jesus' name. 
Now listen to me. If you met that prayer, God heard you, he heard you, he heard you. The Bible says that he writes your name in the book of life. That all of heaven celebrates right now because of your decision. But I want you to know something. While it is recorded, done deal, permanent, there's something else I'm going to ask of you. Some of you are like, I knew you'd embarrass us. No, here's what I need from you. When you leave today at every exit, every campus, if you're listening and you're not at one of our facilities, contact us. You can do it via the web, jfc.org, or you can call us. You'll find that on the website. Here's what I want. When you leave today, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it in your heart, on the way out at the exit, you'll find people holding on to an envelope. They'll be obvious who they are. You cannot miss it. Great big envelope. In that envelope is information on how to have a relationship with God. So why do I need that? Because you made a decision about a relationship today. And relationships are that. They're living and they're daily. So Chris and I, man, just a couple days, we're going to celebrate our 30th anniversary. And I use this little, this little uh, slogan. So we get married 30 years ago. I didn't go back to my house and she went to her house and then we wait till we retire to start living together. So we moved in together right then, man. We started a relationship that's been going for 30 years. What an investment. That's how it is with God. He doesn't want to wait till you die to have a relationship with him. You begin that relationship right now. And so the information in there is how to have a relationship with God. Now, there's no radio tracking device. No person will follow you home. No parachute will land after 10 minutes with a soldier. Hey, we, nothing like that will happen. And in fact, if you don't do it, no one will ever know. I have to put the impetus back on you. If you met your prayer, grab the envelope. If you want to engage somebody, you can. If you just want to walk out, walk out. It's completely up to you. There's information in there on things that can happen next. I would completely encourage you to read that. Take that next step. All right, I'm in deficit right now, but it's deficit I'm willing to take for the win. Here's what I want you to do. Stand to your feet. Use communion, our crosses, worship. John and Gina are going to lead right now. Allow the Holy Spirit the opportunity to facilitate. Jonathan knows what time it is and is fully capable of doing what we need to do. So don't think, God, they don't know what's going on. We know exactly what's going on and what needs to happen. Trust him. He will take care of everything that you need time-wise. When you take communion, when you use our things, let the sacredness come back into your heart. Take a moment and really participate. Don't just do it out of habit. John.